Let me show you how it's done. This is a special live taping of the Drops podcast with Thinkific. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the special edition of the Thinkific Accelerator, where we get to go behind the scenes of the Drops podcast, the authority on product market fit. I'm Tanil, your in-house marketing mentor, but for today, I'm going on mute and passing the mic to our guest speakers who will be talking about the promise and the pitfalls of our AI-driven future for creators. Buckle your seats, okay, for this thought-provoking discussion on artificial intelligence, current state, and the future implications for creators on today's episode of The Drops Podcast. Welcome, 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 everyone. So this is a delightful event for us because, you know, we actually just had our one-year anniversary about a month and a half ago. So it's still, it feels really incredible to be a year into this and having a live audience and having so many different people. I mean, we have people right now in our audience from both Florida and Qatar. Like, this is this is tremendous for us as, as people who just wanted to share a little bit about our experience and hopefully help people make better decisions when it came to product market fit. So having said that, let's get into it, Tam. Tam, you know, it's actually so funny. So y'all can't see Tam right now, but Tam got that new summer look, looking good, got the platinum hair going on. And, you know, she's like, I'm out here ready to have a great time this summer. So I totally feel that. So I'm in the Valley in California and I got in my car a couple of days ago and it said it was 118 and I felt it. I literally felt like hell had scalded my, my legs when I got into the car. Let's just get right into it. So we're gonna talk a little bit about AI. We're gonna talk about also Robin Hood. And then we're gonna also talk a little bit about this actor strike and what it looks like about whether there's actually product market fit there or not. One of the things I wanted to bring up today is this acquisition that Robin Hood recently did of a credit card company called X1. I am an X1 customer, so I'm an early adopter, as we've talked about on this podcast before. Like, if there's something interesting out there, I'm like, well, sure, why not do it? And I'm always looking for a card that has better benefits than the last card. And so X1 was a new card founded by a couple of former Silicon Valley folks. And honestly, I'm not even sure if it's been in business for more than a couple of years. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a relatively new card, but they're very lovely. Like, if I've ever had a problem, they respond. Now, the reason that I thought it was interesting, though, is that Robinhood, their brand has been the company that makes retail investing super easy and simple to do. In fact, one of the things, if you think about Robinhood, historically, what they talk about is being frictionless and democratizing investing. Then, of course, obviously, with like the, you know, meme trading and things like that, their reputation has taken a hit. In terms of, you know, they had to stop trading and in a little bit of context there, because I do think it's important to have this context. One of the reasons, you know, for people who were those mean traders, they were deeply offended because they thought that you know, Robin Hood was trying to prevent them from beating the man. But the reality is, is one of the reasons they actually had to stop trading is because they didn't have enough credit facilities to cover the cost of the trades that were being done on their platform. So just like every one of us, you have to have good credit, right? You have to have a certain amount of credit to be able to do certain types of transactions. And that's actually what happened to Robinhood. So that level of distrust has slowly started to hamper their ability to have, you know, more users join the platform and more people participate on the platform. And so what happened is a lot of those people who used to be Robinhood diehards actually started to disperse to other platforms because they want to have more control over their ability to make investments. 
Now, fast forward, obviously, when you have users who are losing, leaving your platform and your platform is primarily based on your ability to do these transactions, you look for opportunities to still grow and still have new users join your platform. So it makes sense that they were going to look for different types of products or mergers or acquisitions, et cetera, to be able to diversify their portfolio. Now, the reason I wanted to talk about this, though, is, is, is like, is it does it make sense to diversify your portfolio with a credit card? This is kind of a similar thing that happened. For instance, Instacart released a credit card, right? Like they were like, hey, you know, you can get your groceries really quickly. Use our credit card. You know, Apple released a credit card and they were like, you know, we want. And the primary reason for that was because they wanted people to be able to upgrade their Apple products much more quickly. And they wanted to have a credit facility that allowed them to do that. But there's been so much negative sentiment about this credit card. So first one is when major male executives in Silicon Valley, they, they reported that their wives were getting approved for far less money than they were, even though in many instances, their wives actually had better credit. And then most recently, Tim Cook, for instance, couldn't get approved for an Apple card because he's one of those famous people who gets impersonated so often that it's, they actually had to create a one-off exception just to approve his card. So it's created some brand friction for these brands to have these credit facilities. And I think it's primarily because of this idea of what does it look like when you go from being the person who delights someone to being the one who can say, hey, you owe me some money. You need to make this payment. And so that's what we wanted to start off today is like, what does this really mean? What does it really mean to logically and accurately add additional futures or opportunities to, you know, your product suite and what products actually make sense? So, Tam, what did you think about this like acquisition by Robinhood? I thought the acquisition was purely about acquiring new customers. I think to your point about goodwill, Robinhood is, was losing customers. It was very stagnant in its growth. And so staying in this product line of fintech, I guess, I think it made the most sense to go acquire a bank. I don't think that they're sitting on a lot of cash. There's not a lot of banks that they could buy. Um, and I think this is just one of the easier ways to acquire a lot of customers at once. Acquisitions is just one of the ways that companies grow. Um, is it going to be profitable? I, I don't know. I, what does this offer? No annual fees, no late fees or foreign transaction fees, and a sleek, intuitive mobile experience, which is saying a whole lot, like, how are you going to make money then? Like, how is this going to be profitable in the long run? Is it going to be one of those, we're going to give it for free? It's another one of these kind of sugar daddy type of business models where we'll cover the cost for a while, and then we'll eventually add some fees, and we think that customers will be too sticky to leave. And I think it's a very big gamble because there'll just be another smaller bank that another company will try this with and grow customers and the new offer will be there and the incentive to switch will be there. I think strategies like this to acquire customers, subsidize the growth for too long is very risky. Um, so I'm not sure what this is supposed to mean overall. Well, and I think to add it to that, so I brought up the point that one of the reasons that they had they struggled was because of this fact they they had only so much credit facility to be able to do trades at the rate and and at the quantity that people were looking for because X1 is a relatively new card. And to be truthful, being able to underwrite what someone should be able to be approved for and what their credit facility should look like for an individual, for a consumer, like so for corporates, in some ways, it's it's simpler, right? Because, you know, you have like much data. But for a consumer, it's difficult, right? You know, someone could get paid a million dollars and still not pay their bills. Right? You see this every day, like people have a tendency to lapse on payments and things like that. 
And so this card is so new that I wonder if they've even put in place a, a sufficient enough infrastructure to de-risk themselves from the level of the number of people who could potentially, like who could potentially default on their credit facility. It seems like creating more risk for Robinhood. Simple fact is that just because someone has assets doesn't mean that they have the ability to pay for whatever their bill is at the end of the month. And so you end up in this situation where you're going to be sending these notes to people saying, hey, you're 30 days late or you're 60 days late or you're 90 days late. And so then it's like, well, would I not want to even use Robinhood? Because I'm like, well, I don't really like the fact that every time I go to log in to make a trade, they're telling me I owe the money. Right. I don't know. I mean, to be, to be truthful, you should pay your bills. I think it, it would have been more interesting to me to look at like other types of trading platforms, for instance, like I know for, you know, like, you know, I know people think about StockX for shoes or certain collectibles, but, you know, I also think that there's many other types of things that people like to trade that are like real assets that could have been an interesting thing for them to get into instead of getting into a credit facility. And actually, and, and actually what's really funny. So the next point that we wanted to talk about was AI and like kind of who will win the AI race, especially amongst the largest ones, because I think that, you know, Robinhood's a great example of one where like, I would assume that like they're going to add AI in all the different ways. And so maybe one of the things that we can talk about then is, is move straight into this conversation about who will win this AI race. And so what, what this really kind of comes down to is like, you know, obviously there's a bunch of new parties in AI, right? And open AI is the one that many of us know quite a bit about it, right? But the reality is, is that we also know that Apple, Microsoft, Google, all of them are also coming out with AI products. And so one of the questions that I think that we wanted to talk about today is just simply who is most well situated to win this long term? Because presumably some people might say, well, OpenAI has a partnership with Microsoft, so they give Microsoft a leeway. But then we also have heard like things about Meta's AI and how powerful it is. It's so powerful that they're afraid to release it because it could actually create some kind of long-term issue for society that, that you know, like they would be terrifying, essentially. And then you know, obviously Apple is one of those people who they just do things in secret and then it just like drops on us and we're like, oh, that's actually really cool. So Sam, what do you think? I think a lot of things. I think that if the question is, will the category of AI win? Yes, I think so. But I think that everybody's going to find their niche. There's so many different use cases for AI, and each one of them has their own kind of unique advantage in making things work for them. Like Meta has access to a lot of chats, right? This is Facebook. It will access a lot of social media, and LLM built around that is is has probably a use case that could really work. It could probably be better at making chatbots than something else. You know what I mean? I don't really know. It's too early to tell. There are a lot of people testing the capabilities of each of them, and they all perform in some way differently because that is the unique advantage of the way that they are designing these LLMs. But there's a lot of open source LLMs as well. And so I think that this market will eventually become like cloud services where... A lot of people will have an offering that has on majority of the spectrum, a lot of things that are similar and then kind of change in a couple of ways of who does this better in some way. It's way too, too early to tell. I think they're all still figuring things out as well. Maybe Microsoft will excel at coding. They don't all do the same job. When, when it comes to LLMs for Apple, Apple's not going to make this like a commercial product in the way that OpenAI is. The reason why Apple created their own GPT or LLM model was to prevent their own employees from using ChatGPT. 
uh, to be giving co- company information to a competitor in a sense. And so they said, we need to build this thing internally. And they did that. And now they're trying to figure out what to do with it. And I think we're going to see with them, it's just going to be part of their experience. Siri is going to get a whole lot better, hopefully. They're going to find a way to make it unique. I hope it made they make Keynote better. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think they've updated that. After. I don't know how long. Maybe Apple Music becomes better with their LLM. I don't think in the future we're going to be saying the word AI so much. It's almost going to be like saying with Bluetooth or with Wi-Fi. It's just one of these things that's there. And companies are just going to be leveraging the capabilities to make the experience better. I don't think we're going to be saying AI as much anymore. So, take, yeah. so I think that there's... First, first, your point about AI. I, I, I agree. Like, we use the term AI now, right? Because it feels new and it's something that we haven't incorporated in everyday life. But so I read a lot of futuristic novels, right? And so, you know, sci-fi novels. And so, you know, the, like, and, and I believe, like, when I read those novels, they're just like, yeah, the blah, 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 blah. And it's just like normal, everyday conversation. And I, and I agree. Like, I think even, like, your grandparents, you're, you're, like, they're going to be like, yeah, like, of course I use blah, blah, right? You know, and, and it won't be ChatGPT because these names will be normal needs. Products will be normal products that everyone uses. And so, if anything, it'll be like, you know, I'm going to go get a Kleenex. And we know Kleenex is a brand, and what we're really doing is getting tissue. But, you know, you're going to go get Kleenex because that's going to be the brand that you're familiar with, which you use every single day. It's going to be similar to how we talk about, like, you know, I am an iPhone user versus an Android user. Like, these are cell phones, but there's going to be specific brands that we're going to associate with the things that provide that solve the use case that are most important to us. Now, having said that, I think that, that there's a nuance here because I think there's going to be a different winner for enterprise and a different winner for consumer, right? I think it's highly likely that like, um, like a Microsoft or an Amazon would be better for the enterprise side of this, right? Mm-hmm. Than they would be for consumer. Like I think Apple, like no doubt, I think Apple, whatever they decide to do, they will probably include it in such a way that it will create consumer products that are super sticky that people love. Like, I think that's sure. exactly what's going to happen from, from that perspective. And I think Apple will probably do it in a more seamless way than some other people. Cause even like, I know people who both love and hate Siri, but can't live without Siri. Right. Like they will, they will tell you like, yes, because it does my reminders. It does blah, 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 blah. But they also kind of hate it because she, like she interrupts in the middle of a meeting. Apple will be the latest to move in the sense that they will take the longest oh, yeah. to incorporate this technology. When I was at Apple, one of the things I was astounded by is the amount of research that's being done constantly on virtually everything. Yeah. Imagine how much testing they must be doing at this exact moment, trying to figure out like what are the most common use cases that people would probably use AI for? How would we be able to seamlessly add it into our various products? There's people called evangelists who will go through in various Apple features that uh, they want to promote. They will go through to each one of the Apple teams and teach you about that future and coach you on how to implement that future into your product. And so that's one of the reasons that Apple's ecosystem seems so seamless. I'm not sure any of them have ever figured out how to be seamless in their experience, right? Because like Google products, they're doing a much better job now than they've ever done. Because like, for instance, you know, with the new Google Suite, for instance, they, you can actually seamlessly, you know, add in your Google Sheet into your Google Doc, into your, 
your Google email and all this other type of stuff and it's better, but they still have such a large infrastructure and they, I don't know if they've ever really been able to communicate as effectively. Same thing for Meta and obviously Microsoft, you know, from a consumer perspective, I just feel like, you know, it's, it's more likely that they'll be able to do something great with like Xbox and some of their other gaming stuff. And they would be that they would do great things for other consumer products that people use. So in my opinion for consumer, I think Apple's going to win. Even though they're going to be the last one and people are going to dog them and their stock is going to go up and down because they don't do what Wall Street expects them to do. I think that the final product is going to be so great that people are going to like it. Now, for the corporate side, I actually think that Google might actually do the best job because they are so far behind Amazon in some ways when their cloud service and also Microsoft in some ways that I think that this is their Hail Mary. And I think they're going to put so much time and energy into it that they're actually going to build something that's really unique and interesting. So those, those are my two bets for like the enterprise and consumer side. I think Apple's going to excel at what they excel at, which is customer experiences. They're just obsessed with the customer and making that entire ecosystem integrated, which is why it takes a lot of approvals and why things take so long to come out is because they, they do that very thorough checks and balances. And I think they're just going to excel incorporating AI in the way that they do. And I think the other ones are going to play to their strengths. I think we're going to see Microsoft, when I say Microsoft vis-a-vis like OpenAI, they're going to be the ones that first try everything, I think, Mm -hmm. because they're kind of setting the tone. They'll probably make the most mishaps. I think that eventually there'll be this dichotomy between this consumer product and their enterprise customers, and they're going to balance that that value prop. I, I don't know if we're going to see this kind of $20 a month unfettered access to GPT for as much in the future. I'm not sure. I wonder how that's going to play out. And I think Google will do a good job of, of developing tools for developers. They are a true tech company. They do deep research themselves. They created the Transformers that power wrote the paper on it. Um, and so I think that they have a really large advantage. I think when it comes to multimodal language models, which is the ability to have different kinds of senses, to combine sight, audio, and language models into one and and the powerful things that can happen. Imagine, you know, taking text to audio and audio to text and back and forth and text becomes video, audio becomes video, things like that. The sound of a jet engine is now a what kind of jet engine is that? Recreating it from there. That's multimodal processing. There's a lot of possibilities there. And I think that they are probably in the best position to develop the future future of what LLMs are going to be. What it's going to look like, I don't really know because they are also a really big business as well. And they are not in the business of being in every business. They are in the business of creating a lot of technology. And I think previously they held a lot of their technology close. We might see a lot more kind of made by Google in the future. I think that that's kind of interesting. Um, that could happen. Same for Amazon too, right? Amazon has a lot of customers and they're just going to be offering that kind of services, which kind of plays into this next thing about Hollywood. But the idea that all of these tech companies will be incorporating AI or offering these services, we are talking about generative AI as if that is AI. AI is a very large category. Mm -hmm. Gen AI is a very small subset, a very recent category that's come out. And this is one of the most accessible pieces of AI out there. And it's accessible via an API. 
And that is powerful. And talk about disruption. Where is disruption going to happen the most? I believe it's entertainment. Go ahead. Yeah. So I think that, you know, the last point that I think is just super important here that, and I think that this is what you you made. If, if anything, this generative AI is actually going to unlock, I think, a new generation of creatives, you know, inventors, yeah. et cetera. Because, like, I think of it as simple as this. Like, I remember when I was in school, so I'm a little bit older, so I'm a little aged myself a little bit. But, you know, those they, they used to have those computer programs, and it would be color-coded, and you had to do certain actions. And that, and we were the first generation to have that, which is also why we were, like, one of the first generations that became, so many of us became software developers and computer engineers. Now, like, I was literally down, so my son is going to be two in November. And so I was literally downloading games for him, right? So, so games that he could play. And I saw some that were like these engineering games. And I just instantly thought to myself, these games speak in common language. Like, it's just like, you want to turn this thing blue. And it teaches the kid how to do that. Generative AI, I think, will then start to personalize those things. And so then my kid is going to be way more interested in technology than probably even I was. And so the way he's going to think about technology is going to be tremendously different, which means he's going to create things in a way that is beyond even anything I ever considered. And that's the thing I'm most excited about. I think that, you know, the most important thing when we think about science and technology, I mean, obviously they create creature comforts and all those other things, but they are also the, the height of our imagination, right? They help us create things that are just tremendously amazing. And so that's what I'm really excited about. So no matter who ends up winning, what I love about it is that it's going to create this, like everyone's going to be running towards the, the, the finish line and they're going to bring along a whole bunch of other people at the same time. Now, last topic, which is about the, the various strikes that are going on right now. The concept of Hollywood being at a standstill is interesting because it affects people in different ways. Actors, screenwriters, and other industry professionals are not working due to the ongoing strike. This means that content is not being produced. This is causing a halt in the production of movies and TV shows. The actors and writers are demanding better pay and profit share in relation to streaming. And most importantly, restrictions on technology that they feel could replace their work. And the negotiation between the two parties is crucial because the absence of an agreement could have a significant impact. The strike has been going on since March and is reported to continue until January. However, daily life has not been affected yet. The Hollywood industry is one of the most exportable things in American culture, and a prolonged strike could have catastrophic consequences. I think it's an interesting concept to talk about because it impacts everybody in in different ways. Hollywood is essentially at a standstill, and that means that there are people who are not working. The writers who write movies and TV shows have stopped working. Actors, SAG-AFTRA represents about 160,000 members, and those members are reportedly not working, which means Hollywood, Disney, all of the producers that make movies are not making movies right now. Two things that are very interesting here is they're making this play about AI. AI is the big boogeyman, and they want to put guardrails on that. And the other part is the business model. They say, we're not getting paid enough, or we're not getting paid the way we used to, and that's not fair. So there's a lot to unpack there. I want to put this in the broader context because there's some strategy that's going on. This is a negotiation, these two big parties, and what is going to happen in the absence of an agreement. What impact will this have on the future of content? 
or the future of entertainment? Is this the space that AI is going to fill? To your point, how will AI impact the greater creator economy? We're in that phase right now. We'll see what that does. In a couple years, we'll be looking back at this and saying, oh my gosh, here was that moment. Like the last time there was a strike and the writers weren't writing, that was the age of reality TV. And now I don't have this number, but the share of reality TV to real scripted content, I wonder what that share is. But we can point back to that time and say that's when that happened. And so it's interesting to see in the context of what's going to happen. The other interesting thing about this is that one of the biggest exports of American culture is Hollywood. And while we're in the middle of this strike, daily life hasn't changed for majority of the people. This would not happen in any other industry. UPS workers go on strike and, and things are going to shut down. If FedEx employees go on strike, things are going to shut down. If the train employees go on strike, things are going to shut down. And the average person's life would be impacted by that. And so what's interesting about this is while we're going to see the impact of the strike play out. It is not clear that the everyday person will be impacted. This almost seems to be a very Hollywood-centric problem that doesn't have as much reverberating impact as, let's say, a UPS strike would have. Well, so what's so funny about that is that like, we would be remiss because you, you mentioned UPS. I just wanted to be clear that UPS strike was avoided because we knew that we could not go without UPS, right? Like, I mean, I'm sure like Amazon, like there, there's a whole bunch of large corporations that were like, y'all need to figure this out because we need to get our packages to people. And I think that's the thing. I think materially, so there's, there's a couple points here that I think is like super significant here. The average person in the United States does not understand how important, you know, entertainment is probably to our economy. Right. You know, when we hear about billion dollar movies, right, the first thing we think is, well, why? Like, that's a lot of money. Like, that's that's a tremendous amount of money. And, you know, everyone's getting paid. But we know for a fact they aren't. And then I think that, you know, someone uh, someone I was talking to. So, so obviously part of my background is that, you know, I worked at Netflix and, you know, a few of us were in chat together and we were like materially, virtually every day we worked, we got paid more than I think they said more than 60% of all of those sag after workers make less than $26,000 and $26,000 is what they have to make to get health insurance. Right. And so virtually every single Netflix employee got paid more than the sag after um, more than 60% of the sag after actors each day. And materially, we are not the same value as those people. Because if there's no content on Netflix, there's no Netflix, right? You know, I was just in the background making sure that, you know, our data models and our Netflix game and all that stuff worked really effectively. But I could have gotten, you know, I could have just not shown up and we would have still worked, but it, it, it wouldn't have worked if the actors and actresses and producers and writers and directors and special effects people didn't do what they wanted. And, and, and again, those are just like a few titles. From under, like when you actually go through IMDb, there's dozens and dozens of people who work on each one of these things. And so I think there's a few, I think, interesting points here. So first and foremost, I think as a society, right, like we, we are coming to this reckoning of what does it look like to do good work? Right. Because the thing is, is that like we can do it like people can do any type of work, but you like it's like good work is ones that you can do work. You get paid appropriately so that you can move your life or your family's life forward. It's a great example of what this might look like. 
The second part of this that I think is super significant is that, you know, <clears throat> the, the contracts have been bad for a long time. So I think this is one of the things that I think is the most interesting because like a lot of people don't understand why it's such a big deal now. And I was, I was reading some articles about from some of the various leaders. So either people who are like leaders across like the Writers Guild, the Directors Guild, Producers Guild, and also the Actors Guild. And they're all saying, if we do not make a stand now, our returns will continue to diminish in a tremendously devastating way, right? And, and I, I agree because I started looking back through, like for instance, when it came to VHS, they didn't really put their foot down. They really did not want to allow for widespread VHS adoption, for instance, right? Because they knew that it was going to create a high likelihood for piracy. And so then they started losing there. They really didn't want streaming to happen because, again, they were like, this is another vector for piracy because why can't someone just screen record the streaming thing and just put it anywhere they want it to go? And so they kept moving. They Like many of these guilds, they all just allowed these things to continue to you know, be put as a part of the deal. And so it's created this difference in rep share. And so I think that there's a significance here because like you, Tammy, you and I, we've worked for tech companies, we worked for consulting companies, we now work for ourselves. And so the reality is, is that on day one, the first thing that we usually negotiate is our equity, right? We say, it's not enough to just give us a salary. We want to have a piece of the pie because we want to have ownership of this company. And so one of the reasons that we work so hard, well, I don't know if I really, you know, we worked the level that they asked us to work <laughs> is because we wanted to make sure that our equity worked, right? Like, they're like we were like, okay, well, this is how much money we need to make, blah, 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 blah. So like, we need to do these things because my stock went up. I remember when I was at Apple, it's when Apple first became a trillion dollar company. And I kept my stock from Apple and it doubled. And I was like, now I understand why people work for Apple for 20, 25, 30 years, because like you can actually see the value of your work and you can see it in your, not only in what you do and how people perceive it, but also in your bank account. And so it's- it's Hold on for a moment, because I don't want to miss your point. I think what you're saying is that SAG-AFTRA and the WGA have repeatedly failed to anticipate the impact of technology. And that they're suffering the consequences. And I think that I buy that point. This seems to be a widespread issue in the entertainment industry. With other examples in the music business, rather than trying to prevent technological changes, they should be focusing on how they can adapt and remain valuable to their members. And I think the end point of all of this is that ultimately it seems that they need more technologists on their team to stay ahead of the curve. The argument is essentially that Hollywood cannot function without them, being SAG-AFTRA and WGA, the members that they represent. And this is a product market fit question, PMF in a sense. And this is the phase that they are in right now. Hollywood will test that assumption. Is this really true? Are writers and actors truly indispensable to the industry? Or are they simply just trying to protect their own interests? So let's so let's go back to that that point that you made about the last time that there was this big strike that all the reality TV came about, right? What we know is reality TV is not what gets you awards, right? And so people are always going to want to have these different classes of content. There's always going to be action movies versus the latest Steven Spielberg depressing movie that makes me cry, right? Like there's always going to be these different levels of like, you know, different pieces of content. And, and, and so I, so there's always going to be like, like that segmentation that exists. But the second part of that is reality TV is actually kind of difficult to maintain. Like if you look at the, like the Real Housewives of, you know, whatever 
city it is, they rotate through their cast every few years because it gets boring. Either the stars get uninterested or the audience gets uninterested in certain people. They have to re, re, redo it over and over and over again. And it still has diminishing returns because there now are so many different types of either reality series or docuseries that it's saturated. And people are looking for original stories that are delightful, even in reality. So I do think that there is always going to have to be some creator who is back there, who's going, well, what, what's the next thing? Earlier today, I was talking to some engineers and they were talking about that they did a hackathon and everyone used AI. And so they were just like, well, I guess what we're really trying to figure out is who was the best prompt engineer today. But the thing is, they still had to prompt it to try to get this result. And so there's a certain level of creativity that you have to have to write prompts in such a way to get some kind of final result that will be interesting and engaging for those end users. And so I do think that there's always going to be some specific need. There's always going to be some specific need for an, a human, especially for creative. Like, like I don't know if, it, like, this, in, in, for software development, it could be different. But for creative stuff, you're going to have to have someone who's going to sit there and go, what if? Because I don't think AI can come up with, like, you know, if you said AI developed, like, 12 sci-fi shows that will engage an audience, it's probably going to sound a lot like a whole bunch of stuff that already existed. And we know that humans, generally, we get bored. And so we're always looking for something that's going to be so tremendously different than what we've had before that we're going to want to pursue it. From their perspective, the argument isn't about whether AI is taking over all aspects of writing. Writing, in their opinion, doesn't necessarily create meaning. Studios are often looking for specific genres. It will ask writers to produce work in those genres. This is how many writers get their jobs. They fulfill the dreams of someone else rather than pitch their own ideas. Should they be concerned about AI replacing them? It's possible, but there are certain things that AI cannot do. It cannot produce a masterpiece without significant human input or feedback. Therefore, it will still require a role for humans. However, AI can fulfill many roles and tasks that are previously done by humans. And while this may not be the most immediate threat, it does raise questions about the business model and whether writers and actors are being fairly compensated or whether their roles are at risk of being eliminated, whether there is a career for them in the future. One of the notions I kind of want to push back or at least question in this conversation is the statements coming from SAG-AFTRA and WGAs essentially that Hollywood is trying to turn this profession into a gig economy. And my question is, when has it not been a gig economy? Entertainment has always been a field where only a few people make a good living, while the majority struggle to make and to me, that is the history of the entertainment business. For, for many, acting is a hobby. For others, it's a money pit. And for very, very few, it's a way to make a very good living. But it has never been a full-time job. And I think that that's represented or reflected in just the distribution of incomes. Take, for example, SAG-AFTRA as a union. It has 160,000 members. And that's not representative of everyone who wants to be an actor. That's representative of everyone who paid the $3,000 membership fee and the yearly base 200 and something dollar fee, plus 1% of their qualifying income, up to a million dollars. That is what SAG-AFTRA represents, those who act who paid this fee, essentially. 
But if you plotted the incomes of all 160,000 members from the top paid actor, and I don't know who that is, to the lowest paid member, and I don't know who that is, I believe that that distribution would look a lot more like Uber or DoorDash, a gig economy. It would not look like Netflix, where I think you can argue that the lowest paid product manager at Netflix probably makes more than the average actor on Netflix. To further illustrate that, the minimum qualifying income to receive sag after benefits like health insurance is $26,000 a year. And 80% of sag after members don't meet that threshold. So how about this? Instead of talking about whether all 160000 should get this, let's talk about the 5% right. who really, you know, prop up the whole thing. The, the things that I've read that, that, that cause me concern. So like as a tech person, I almost always sign some kind of non-compete agreement or some kind of NDA. And it says I can't go work for someone in the same industry or who's doing like a similar idea. And that anything I did is owned by the company I worked for. And I'm fine with that. On the flip side, when it comes to writers, directors, producers, actors, they often are entered into contracts that are exclusive that says that you can't work for anyone else until you finish the thing we want for us. And then, by the way, we may not even actually do that thing. And so you might be sitting there for a year or two years or three years or four years or five years, and we are legally preventing you from doing anything else. And that's the problem I have. Like, it's very strange to me that you can, you can make, you can, like, you can take people to your point who understand that this is a risky business, right? And so they know that they're taking certain types of risks and that they may not be compensated in the same way as other people, but you're actually taking away their ability to do other things. And that's the part I think is very strange. Like, how can you lock someone into some kind of weird contract like that and then not even potentially do the work? And then they got paid like five bucks for it. I mean, and it trips, like, obviously I'm being extreme. So let's pretend it's like $100,000 over five years. But that's only $20,000 a year that that person made for, for something that may not even ever be released, right? So they can't even include it in their like, you know, their, their work on IMDb or anything like that. So it also prevents them from being able to say, I actually have been working for five years, like on this thing, but it never got released. Mm-hmm. I think, and I think that's the right. thing that's strange to me. So like, so to your point, do I think that they should get more of a rev share? Actually, I kind of do. Primarily because, like, I, again, I worked at these companies. I know how much I made at Netflix. Do I actually think I was worth how much I made at Netflix? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm just like, you know, with 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 how difficult it is to build technology, sometimes I felt like, you know, we could have, there could have been less of us and we could have done it. I don't know. But the simple fact is, I know if you could pay me that, I, I know you could probably pay an extra, you could you can allocate 1% of your profits to some kind of share. Cause I think that's what I've told you that I think is very important. I think that the real move forward, I think there should be a creative fund, right? I think, you know, similar to how TikTok and, you know, Snapchat and Meta put to, put aside like a fund for creatives that who really drove their platform and really drove engagement on their platform. We know for a fact that every single streamer, every single content provider knows who are the most valuable people. Right. They know whose content sells better, whose content streams more. I think if I were if I were one of these people who are in the five percent, I would say, hey, I don't know if I can get all the money for everybody. But I do know that I drive a shit ton of your business and I would really, really appreciate if I could get a bonus for how valuable I am to your business. 
And I, I've always thought that that would be an interesting way to do it because then it, hopefully it, it starts to work out, right? Because those people who are on the bottom now, if they do become like some of those stars, then they start to go up that bonus level and they get the money. But I do like I, I think there should be a reward for the most important most important talent. Like I do. I, I fundamentally do. Because why not incentivize that? There seems to be a lot of controversy surrounding the amount of money being spent on acquisitions by these streaming companies. Netflix has an $18 billion war chest to buy content. And some writers are arguing that they aren't receiving residuals, which juxtaposed against this acquisition budget, it brings a lot of attention to the issue. For instance, there is an actress who appeared on HBO's Insecure for five seasons who recently shared that she received less than $100 in residual checks from Netflix from her work on the show. Netflix bought the show after it stopped airing on HBO and put it on their platform. And uh, among 20 or so checks that she received, they all totaled to less than $100. The lowest one being like 85 cents, the highest one being maybe $31. And that sounds like a horror story. But I also think it's worth noting that Insecure isn't a current show on Netflix and was acquired after the fact. Therefore, it's very difficult to know how much viewership the show is currently receiving on the platform. And what that really does is raise questions about the impact of streaming on the entertainment industry. Before streaming, there were far fewer shows being produced and everyone watched TV at the same time. On CBS, NBC, 9 p.m. was 9 p.m. for everyone. And the business model that thrived there was, hey, we have a captured audience at 9 p.m. who want to watch our network and we want to get the best show that we can get. Maybe that's Friends, maybe that's The Cosby Show, maybe that's Seinfeld, whatever that show is, Law and Order, whatever these long-running shows are, is an indication that it draws viewership to that channel. And they get to sell that viewership to advertisers who will pay premium dollars for a certain time slot. And so before streaming, that meant that there was a premium on the content that was being made that also meant that there was a restriction on the content that was being made. Streaming comes around and what streaming does is eliminate the timeline. And now nine o'clock is different for everyone. And that changes things fundamentally because their business model is not built around a single time slot, a premium show, and people watching and we can sell that time slot essentially to advertisers. They are essentially a Google Drive in the sky where people at will choose the content that they want to watch. Before streaming, there were probably somewhere around 200 and something productions per year by Hollywood. Let's just call it that group. With the rise of streaming in 2019, Netflix alone released 370 titles on their platform. There's a lot of argument to be made that streaming has somehow cheapened the entertainment industry. Others point out that it's also allowed for more content to be produced, including shows like Insecure, where someone argued that that would not have been made in pre-streaming era. Why am I saying this? I think the, that's the argument of the streamers, that we are not a broadcaster. We don't control what people watch. We are essentially a library in the sky. And I think they're going to try to use the argument, just as any writer, J.K. Rowling or John Grisham, does not go to any public library system and say, for every book that's checked out, you have to pay me. They don't have that business model. I think they're going to say the same thing. It's important to understand the business models that we're in right now. It has fundamentally changed. 
we want to compare streaming to broadcasting, but actually streaming is a lot like Blockbuster digitally. They're essentially Blockbuster in the sky. Quite literally, they are Blockbuster in the sky, meaning the cloud in this instance. And in the Blockbuster model, actors also didn't get paid every time a movie was watched, where streamers are saying, we're not a broadcaster, we don't control what people watch. We're more like a blockbuster in the sky where people walk in and they choose what they want to watch among all of the titles that we have. And if you go back to the blockbuster model and saw how that operated, the risk was on blockbuster. A movie's coming out and blockbuster says, this is going to be a hot movie. I think a lot of people are going to run this. I'm going to buy 20 titles of this DVD. And maybe each of these DVDs costs $100. I'm not going to put 20 of these titles in one of my stores. If I own 10 stores, I'd have to multiply that. This is a very unscalable solution. They would take the risk of buying all of this content and hope that they would make their money back and the number of rentals. And in that business model, no actors received residuals. And that's the argument the streamers are making. We are buying content. Before, in the broadcasting model, had a show like Insecure not been syndicated or not picked up in reruns, it would have just been off the air. And so Netflix is saying, we are paying to acquire this and we are taking the risk that people are going to watch it. The other part of that is, think about the library of Netflix. There are 6,500 titles. And so then the new question becomes, of the 6,500 titles that are available on Netflix for customers to pick and choose at any given time, to make 9 p.m. whatever they want it to be for them, what percentage or what share of the the titles do you believe this particular show is getting in any one month when it's not a current show it's a show that's off the air from a different network and it's sitting in a library among 6,000 other titles I think one of the real culprits to consider when we're talking about where the problem lies is that the issue is not so much the streaming company as it is just pure competition. You are competing for FOMO. What should I be watching now? I don't want to miss out. And nostalgia. For the first time ever, we have access to all content. I can watch your current stuff or stuff you did five, ten years ago. And I think that that's important to consider when we're talking about why don't we have as much residuals as we had before. There's also just that much more competition to watch content currently. We're also talking about like this, this societal shift to consuming large amounts of content generally. Because it's not just streamers. Like, if, if Facebook had never existed, I would not have to look at whole news feeds anywhere, right? It's insane, you know, the amount of the amount of content that people ask you to consume. But, you know, when you were talking, one of the things that you mentioned is this, like, $18 billion budget. Like, where does it go? And one of the things that I, I thought was very interesting, so when I was at Netflix, you know, I got to, you know, see a lot of the products that were built to kind of help try to make the business more efficient. And one of those was like, you know, like there, there, there's, there's many of them, but like examples are, you know, trying to figure out how much a, a piece of content should actually cost. Right. So instead of saying, Oh, let's just buy this thing. Your response should be some more like, Oh, well um, let's not spend over X for this thing. Right. Like we could actually create, you know, a model that talked about how much, you know, based on the, the user behavior for other pieces of content like that, this is how much that thing should be worth. 
There's also tools that said, you know, if you wanted to cast an actor, like this actor might be worth this versus this other actor. So like in theory, you could look at someone who maybe has less of a, a high profile, but has a high potential for payoff because they're cheaper. And, 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 you know, there's also, you know, there's so many different tools that talk about pieces of content and which piece of content actually return value versus other pieces of content. And I'm going to tell you, as someone who was on those teams, you know, trying to build things to help them make better decisions, many content executives just didn't didn't even look at them. They didn't. They didn't look at them at all. They said, at the end, it's about my gut. So so to the larger union conversation that I think is going on here, it's, well, what the heck are you doing? Right? Like, you know, maybe you need to be more efficient with the $18 billion. And it's not about us losing money. It's about you figuring out how to be a better business. And I do think there's a responsibility there because it's a responsibility not only because it's the unions who are asking that, but it's it's a responsibility in the companies, right? Because as a stockholder in some of these companies, and since I know exactly what happens, I think in my head, I'm like, I have this stock, but sometimes I'm really frustrated because I know they're probably not being nearly as efficient as they should be. To they're learning that lesson. They're learning that lesson with the drop. But 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 no, no. So I would argue, okay, I, I do agree with you that they are learning the lesson that they need to be more practical about what they should create. But I also think, you know, like when I right. think of like the, the, the Max people, you know, Warner Brothers, all those people, the way that they're doing it doesn't even make sense to me. They're like, there's actually content that's already been created. They were like, well, it's going to be too expensive to show it. But you've actually pissed off everyone in this group because like it was supposed to be released and it wasn't supposed to be released. And so, you know, my, my whole point is, right. is that like, you know, you know, obviously they. They have a lull. They're going to start releasing it now. Now. Well, yeah, they, they're going to have to. But, but, but my point is, is that there is a tremendous opportunity to be more practical in terms of how you do it. And actually, this is where AI, this is what I'm, I'm trying to bring, I'm, I'm gonna bring it back to AI right now. This is where AI could be very helpful though, right? Because like, what if you could create models, for instance, that talk about exactly how long a show should take to make, exactly, you know, what types of edits, or like, let's say if you could do, use AI to do post-production more efficiently. So it's like right, like right now, for instance, like, you know, the Justice League movies, I remember went way over budget because of this. I mean, so many movies go over budget, like they might be okay up to a certain point and then they have to do all this post-production stuff where they need to change something. And so that's where the AI stuff comes in. I think that also, you know, when we were talking via text, you mentioned that, you know, people could, you, in the contract, it could say, you can use AI to do X, Y, Z to, for the movie or something like that. And I'm like, that makes sense because that's how you can create efficiencies. And if we can make the movies or TV shows or whatever more efficient, perhaps we could save, recoup some of that, that money that we lose. And that's a way that we could actually pay people more. Let's finish our conversation with a discussion on AI. I want to know your opinion on whether AI is a hero or a boogeyman. But before that, I want to make one last comment on the business models from a strategic standpoint. I believe that actors should focus on getting paid up front. Many tech employees have learned this lesson after layoffs from the tech industry and losing their equity. I don't think that streamers don't want to share their income with others. I don't think that that's the primary focus. I don't think members of the union are going to like what they see in the numbers. Fran Drescher, who's the leader of SAG-AFTRA, is asking for 1% of Netflix revenues. And let's unpack that for a second. Let's just assume 200 million subscribers at any given month for Netflix. 
and let's assume average blended rate of $12 per head, that's $24 billion per month. 1% of that is $24 million a month. There are 160,000 actors as part of that union. Let's say 80% of them or something have content on Netflix at any given time. 100,000 users across 24 million, that's $240 per month. Let's double that percent to 2%. You're still less than $500 a month. That's less than $6,000 a year. You still don't qualify for benefits. I can't imagine that this is what they're doing it for. I don't believe that this is the model that the industry should pursue because what they're essentially saying is let's go to the Spotify model and learning a lesson from Spotify, the biggest streaming platform out there. That is a money losing proposition. Spotify operates in two different models. They have a streaming model where users upload their own content. You're an artist, you upload that content, you get paid per streams. And they also have this podcast function where they will pay for content, $200 million to Joe Rogan in the hopes that they can retain users or increase the lifetime value of a customer. And the risk is on them in that model. The risk of uploading your content and getting paid per stream is all on you now as a user. So if you think if the industry goes to this Spotify, you're going to have to start releasing content at the speed of Drake, you know, something every 30 minutes or something like that. There's no easy way out of this for sure. Well, musicians definitely like musicians will tell you do not go for streaming. I mean, like because it's like it's like you could have it's like you could have three billion v- you can have three billion streams and make like a thousand dollars. Like that don't make sense. You you have to be Taylor Swift to make money on on streaming because she has different contracts. I you know. You know, so so we actually do have a quick question, and, and I wanted to make sure that we answer this question real quick. So so for people on the podcast, we, we do have a live audience today. We told them to feel free to ask us some questions. One of the questions is, there has been a lot of fear talk going around about AI. What should regular consumers of this tech look out for? I think the first thing, though, like, we should also say, like, you know, what, like, a part of the fear, what the fear comes from. It, so much of it comes from, well, they have to take your information to do this. So I think one, people are worried about privacy and things like that as well. Um, But you know, what do you think, Sam? Bringing this full circle in the context of how AI will impact creators or Hollywood or the entertainment industry, I believe that a new class of creators will emerge from the convergence of the entertainment industry. I think it's an exaggeration to say that machines are going to be replacing actors. I think Hollywood probably watches too many movies. AI's potential to improve efficiencies in areas like Foley and post-production are real. It's already happening. I think that that's where you're going to see a lot more of advancement in technology being used. But I also want to point out that this technology is also accessible to the creators themselves, like actors and and writers alike when you really think about where power lies it's in relationships and so people like Shonda Rhimes and you know Christopher Nolan can absolutely create a large language model of their content and it helps them write better you're going to see AI incorporated into the tools improving workflow in a way is where you're going to see this productivity efficiency starts to occur I think especially 
But this is also a technology that can be leveraged by everyone. And I'll give you an example. Going back to the earlier point I made about Hollywood being one of the biggest exports of American culture, I spent some time in Germany. I was having a dinner with some Germans, having a friendly conversation, and one woman says her favorite actor is Bruce Willis. Okay, I'll bite. Why do you like Bruce Willis? She says, his voice. It's so sexy. And I'm thinking to myself... Bruce Willis has a sexy voice. I, I never really thought of Bruce Willis as having a sexy voice. And she's like, his voice is so deep. And now I'm really perplexed because I'm trying to remember Bruce Willis's voice. There's this guy at the table as well who either is American or speaks or knows a lot about American culture. And so he interjects and he says, in Germany, everything is dubbed in German. There are no subtitles. Every movie that comes here gets dubbed. And if the actor is successful, their dub actor is also successful to keep the continuity. So for many Germans, the German voice of Bruce Willis is Bruce Willis. And this was wild to me because for many actors, their voice is their identity. It's very hard to separate the two. This is 2018. The next day, hanging out with a German guy, I'm just bringing up this conversation again is it true that you watch everything in German you don't watch it in in the original language and he's like yes this is 2018 and Denzel Washington has a movie coming out I want to say it was Equalizer 2 could have been billboards around the city the trailer was absolutely out and so I say to this guy do you know who Denzel Washington is and he's like yes of course and I say do you know what he sounds like And he's like, yes. And I say, are you sure? And so I find this trailer clip, original audio clip of the trailer for Equalizer 2. And I play it for him and his face drops. Like he could not believe, eyes bulging out of his his head. He couldn't believe it. To him, that was not Denzel Washington speaking. And this is wild to me because how do you separate the two? And so fast forward to 2021, I have this insight that Dubbing is going to become a thing. Dubbing will become more prevalent as streaming services seek content from all over the world. You've got to start exporting it, putting it in new languages, and that that was going to be a thing. Several months later, Netflix, obviously thinking the same thing, announces publicly that they've created a dubbing agency, a a partnership of sorts that all over the globe is set up to dub these movies that they acquire. And upon hearing that news, I thought to myself, that's not something a tech company would do. It was really odd to me because this was 2021 and the technology to clone voices was available then. And if I were a tech company that was in the business of streaming, I would have said to Denzel Washington, you should do your next movie here. You should do your next five movies here because we can make you speak German. Not another voice speaking German for you, but you can speak German. You can also speak Spanish. You can also speak French to sweet immediately. This is possible with this technology. That would have been a value add or a value proposition to the actors. And they didn't do that. Why am I saying that? I'm saying this to say in the context of who has the ability to leverage this technology, I think that SAG-AFTRA and WGA is just as much as a position to leverage this technology as Netflix, HBO, or Disney. I think at the end that SAG-AFTRA is going to have to redefine what it is to be a union and what their value proposition to their own members are because they have a lot of leverage. They represent 
all of the actors. And they can absolutely say to their own member, Denzel Washington, your voice is too unique. This is something you can clone. This is something you can own. You can bequeath this in your will of some sort. And so I think they're missing out on that opportunity to do that. Same goes for the WGA, who represents every writer. The leverage in creating the next large language model, LLM, to write scripts is going to come from those who write scripts. That's not Hollywood. That's the writers. And so if there was anyone that had an opportunity to leverage this technology, it's those that are striking right now. Why isn't the WGA building their own large language model and licensing that to Hollywood? Why isn't the SAG-AFTRA representing their actors and saying, we will help you protect your identity and your voices by leveraging this technology so that you're protected? They are absolutely within their power to do that. I'm not sure what tech company they're referring to. They're calling the big boogeyman. Yeah, you know I mean? you're right. I think that there needs to be like, they actually, we may be wrong. We may not know. There might be a technology committee. We just don't know about the technology committee. But well, either way, they need to hire some people like us on that technology committee, if there is a technology committee, because I do think that you should be able to look around the corner and see exactly what's going to happen. And by the way, the dub thing that you brought up is hilarious because I actually, so because of, you know, being an LGBTQ plus person, I was often asked to say, hey, this is a trans person. And we're looking at voices in these different countries. Does this sound authentic to that person? Like, does this like, and I was like, you just ask the actor. Cause I don't know. Like, because it, it was, it was a thing where they were trying to say like, like, like uh, they were trying to find someone who was supposed to emote the type of whatever, blah, 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 blah. Not something of tech well, yeah. I mean, and I think that is the challenge though, because like when you are in a, a place that you're dealing with creatives they they were always trying to find this blend between building things and also honoring like the, the way the systems typically worked as well. But to your point, I do agree. Like, so for instance, if I were any type of creator right now, like who, who has to be on screen, I would figure out how to trademark every single aspect of my being. And then I would, I would charge a licensing fee to put me in things. And then I just wouldn't show up to that thing. Right. Like I, I like I wouldn't have to leave my house. Like you want to put me, one of the biggest things in post-production of movies is sometimes the live recording doesn't take. And so actors have to come back and re-record ADR, the voice. This is a perfect opportunity for AI to say, go on to your next thing, Matt Damon, whoever it is. We have your voice. They, If sag After was really after this, you should, or any actor, you actually don't need sag After. The most expensive thing you're going to pay for is an IP lawyer, right? You can absolutely do this yourself, protect your voice. And on every set, you would say, here's the voice print that you can use well, and, for post. Well, and, the other, and I think the other thing that's interesting about that is that, like, then every contract has, it's there's, there's a, an addendum in every contract. Because the contract would basically say, sure, I will let you pay me this much to be, you know, on set. And then there's a separate fee to be able to utilize blah, 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 because right. you'd have to license it. And so I think the licensing model actually is what they really want. Actually, by the way, like based on what they're saying, no, based on what they're saying, it's like they want to be able to say, I want to have more control, right? Is really what it seems like they're saying. Like at its base, like, because like, for instance, I was listening to Samuel L. Jackson. So Samuel L. Jackson was talking about his contracts and how he marks out all yeah. that stuff. He's like, I don't want people to be able to do whatever they want with me. And and then and, and after that, I started listening to some other people. And so the money is a huge part of it, no joke. Like, but for the bigger actors, it's about having control. Like, how do how do I control what's going out uh, going on? 
Tamara Jackson is another one. Go protect your voice right now, and you can license. That's something you can well, do. Exactly, because it'll be a part of your estate. It'll be yep. a part of your estate, and it, and it can exactly. sustain your family for the rest of their life. Because Morgan Freeman can be God in everything for the next hundred years. In everything. He could be doing all of the documentaries. Here's another practical use case for writers and an opportunity. Like I said, that uh, this kind of AI, generative AI, is one of the most accessible AIs. It's available via an API. This is not something they need to wait for Hollywood to do. Like I said, I don't even really consider Netflix in this capacity to be much more advanced in tech than, than the WGA can be at this point. That someone like a Chandra Rhymes, they give a gazillion dollars to Chandra Rhymes is create shows for us. Chandra Rhymes can absolutely want to duplicate her style at scale. And her job is to pick the right contract. The real thing about this business is still relationships that sell contracts. It's not the writer. It's not, you know, whether it was a machine or a human, it's the relationship that they have. And so she already has that relationship. She, Chandra Rhymes doesn't have to wait for Netflix to duplicate all her scripts. Chandra Rhymes can create her own large language model and say, the next adaptation I want to do is on this person. In the style of myself, Chandra Rhymes, give me a first draft. And the other ways you're going to see this improve that process is, you know, hey, this is a period piece, Bridgerton. Create the treatment for what this room would look like for the storyboarding. And so you're just going to see this kind of workflow improvement happen a lot. And I think that if you're a creator who's not working in Hollywood, that this is your opportunity to get to leverage that for yourself. It's this accessible. The other thing I think is that this is probably the opportunity for there to be a new class of creators. Like we had what Issa Rae was when she was no one and used YouTube as a platform to become someone in Hollywood. They now have an opportunity to say, well, we really need Hollywood to create this contact and, and go back to a self-serve platform like YouTube and do their thing there. If you really want this revenue share model, YouTube already offers that. So by the way, on a completely different level, we didn't even get into YouTube and how YouTube is as, as much of a threat as AI is, actors. For sure. it's, a, it's a huge thing that they... Um, that they well, because, like, first of all, if I really want to go see my favorite scene from a movie, I could probably just go to YouTube and find it and, and watch it real quick, if I'm honest, right? And and also, if there's some impersonators who do the fav my favorite scene in a movie better than the person who did it originally, like, I love how they do it, and so I go watch it there. You know, when I think about, like, I've watched YouTube probably more than any of the other specific streaming networks, over the past couple of weeks, well, when my kid loves YouTube, so like, you know, like we can find stuff really quickly, but also like, you know, there's a lot of original content on YouTube that I watch that is truly unique, right? It's truly unique. I've never seen it anywhere yeah. else. And it's from people that I care about. And so like, I'm much more engaged with it than I am. Like when we try to go to Max and Paramount and Netflix and all those other ones, it's really hard. Like, you know, there's so much out there. It gets very overwhelming. And I go to YouTube, which has a much better algorithm than virtually everyone. And I know they gonna find the thing because I love, so these, these are my categories. I love music shows. I love forming music performances. Mm -hmm. I love like certain types of pieces of content. Like, you know, where like, you know, like for instance, one of my favorite things, if I feel sad, you know, on Avengers, the like the last Avengers Endgame, when it's like, it looks like they're gonna lose. And then like the whole squad comes out. Like that's my favorite scene. Like I will put that scene on, I'll just repeat it over and over again. And I don't pay Disney anything. You know what I'm saying? So I just say, quality on on youtube would you watch a 30 minute series of course on YouTube? i already do like if, you know, i already do i mean like for instance right. i again i'm lgbtq plus and so most of the lgbtq plus content that's actually pretty good are like these things that people are doing with their iphones that they you know they only host on youtube right. 
I, this is what I'm saying. Uh, this is the new class of creators. Why are you, don't wait for Hollywood to give you a deal. It's now easier than ever to start creating content that looks almost, we're not, oh, we're not at Hollywood quality with this AI stuff, but we are getting there. And there are some short form things that you can do. And if you, if you have brand power, you know, Easter Ray can absolutely come down and do another show on YouTube and people will watch and you get all that yeah. cake. You know what yeah, I'm because saying? we also trust her and, and she also, I mean, her brand, the thing is, is, is that's a huge part of it. It's a huge part of it. There's a huge opportunity there in this lull because I don't think that that's part of that after. This is independent. Go create another show, put it on YouTube. Yeah. Something that we didn't talk about, but that you mentioned, and I think it's important that we just mentioned it before we end, is that, you know, you mentioned the fact that, you know, Bridgerton, so Bridgerton is a part of a book series and it was a book series that, you know, Shonda Rhimes bought the the rights to years and years and years ago, and it took a long time to promote. And so the authors have have signed a letter. Like, there's a letter. It's like, I think it's like you know, like Stephen King and all these other major authors actually signed this letter saying, "Do not use my content for your large language models." They said, "Do not do it." And I think that that's a huge part of that thing too. That's like very fascinating because, like, you know, so much of you know, movies and TV are adaptations of books. And so that's a whole another category that I think is interesting here in this play, because to some extent, like obviously AI is going to be able to create books, especially like the low, low, like, you know, the lower brow books or whatever you want to call them. And so like it does, it does become very interesting to see like, you know, like maybe authors are actually going to become gold. Right. The person who actually is a really great author, a great writer is going to be the richest person in America because every creative is going to be like every studio is going to be like, we need this book. We will pay any amount of money because we think that this is going to be the one one thing that's going to make my budget for this year. What do you think about that argument? I've been watching these arguments, these cases, and, you know, the artists are trying to say, you can't train. You need to compensate me to feed your machine learning models. And the only thing I think is going to have a lot of difficulty in, in succeeding there, because it is not against the law to learn. And that is going to be the argument of these tech companies. We are not copying you. We well, no, no. But the thing is, you do have the ability to say that I think this is going to be the interesting thing. Because let's say if the book is available in a public library, right? So presumably it is free for anyone to take and to consume, right? However, if you, if the, the agreement is, is that the only reason we allow that to be in a library is because we want, um, it's because we think that individuals should have the opportunity to read this book and take it back. I mean, I, I guess we can go down a rabbit hole there. But I do think that there is some, like, we know that those things are trademarked. If someone else created a book that's exactly your same book and released it, you would be able to sue them and they would not be able to do it because it's copyrighted. Now, in this case, if, even though you're learning from it, right? So like, let's say if I go get, you know, a biology book right now and I'm a doctor and I'm learning to implement something, it's a net new thing that I'm doing. In the case of large language models, and it, you could be argue, you could argue that one of their goals is to be able to mimic that same thing, and so it's not a net new thing. Right. And so I do understand why it mm-hmm. feels a little bit different. It is different, 
in the eyes of the law, it's very different. There was a case that was denied. It was an artist who sued, Stability AI was sued, saying that uh, it, it outputted work that, that replicated their art. And the judge ruled, you can't prove what art was replicated. Your copyright is on the copyright of that image. You can't say the inspiration was there because then you'd have to go to every university and say, don't teach my style because students are going to so, emulate it. That's the very slippery slope well, that this judge is saying, one was copied. They learned from your style. And so can I tell you, that's so that's the part I'm afraid of, because I think what's going to happen is, is people are going to go through, like they're going to be so draconian about how they try to shut down people's mm -hmm. ability to take their content that it's actually going to take it from everyday people. Yeah. Right. They're not going to be in libraries. Yes. They're not going to be available to, right. you know, on, right. online. You're going to have to be able to buy it physically, like the, your Kindle account. If you have a family account, anyone in your family can borrow that book. They're going to get rid of services like that. And so if anything, we're going to have a society that has less opportunity to learn and participate with each other. And that's the thing that's terrifying to me because I'm a poor kid from Mississippi. I couldn't afford anything. And it was only because those things were free that I was able to have access right. to them. So there, there's going to be this interesting dynamic that you're going to have to navigate. Right. There's going to be a time and a half knots where the poor only consume AI-generated content that's cheap and easy to make, and, and the, the, those that can afford it consume the, the higher... I mean, I already today... I, what, what's happening to Hollywood is probably what happened to the journalists, the community, right? Internet came, and, and uh, BuzzFeed listicles came, and it cheapened what journalism was. And I think that that same thing is happening here. I, I, I right now, just to stay away from the flow, I probably pay about 700 a year and just higher quality yeah. news content, things I need yeah. subscription, because the better quality stuff is behind a firewall yeah. these days. So I think I say that to say is there will always be... A, I think streaming has bifurcated the market in a sense, and back to the product market fit thing is it remains to be seen what people are willing to pay for. Well, and actually, so Steph, so Steph in our audience just made a good point. So, so she said, don't get me started about the artist. I am now an AI artist, AI artist because of AI. No way an artist can draw what's in my head and give me variations in minutes. Artists should embrace AI just like writers. One, I agree with that. So again, I don't think any, like Tam, neither Tam or I actually disagree that AI can be used. Because like, for instance, I cannot draw to save my life. And I when I, I remember going to Mid Journey and I was like, wow, I was like, it's so cool that I can finally create something that looks like what I want. Because my brain, all of our brains are uniquely different. And so that's why I do think it's important to like, like you, know, if, if, you know, no matter what we've said here, like, so what we really are saying is AI can be a game changer in terms of advancing lots of different things. But there is a responsibility for those who are using AI to not take other people's stuff, right? Like, I do think that's a thing. Like, you, like I, I do think that there's a responsibility to like navigate that conversation in a nimble way. Cause like, if you want to use Stephen King's books, yeah. then you should say, hey, Stephen King, I want to use your books. Like, is there a price that I need to pay to do that? That's how I personally feel about it. If you, if, let me ask you something. If you were an amazing artist and I said to you, B, I, uh, my Picasso got burned in a fire and I need to replace it. Um, here's a picture. Can you replicate this signature and all? And you did that. And I took that and instead of putting it on my wall, I sold it. Where did the- Oh, no, no, so, no, no, no. so as long as it says that this is Picasso by XYZ person, I'm fine with it. The problem yeah. is you can't pass it off as the original. Right, that's right. 
right? But nothing about that. And that's a true story. There was a famous forger who would replicate these things and he would give the paintings away to museums, passing it off as the real thing, but he gave them away. He could not convict them because he did not violate copyright, mm -hmm. which is the profit from it. And that's the distinction that I'm trying to make here is that the LLM models or the tech companies are going to argue it is not against the law to learn. Yeah, but they are profiting though. But they are profiting though. Oh, they, they provide a service. They're providing a service. They are a graphic artist. And let's say the same scenario. I went to a guy who's just a savant who can look at something and immediately paint it. He doesn't know who Picasso is. And I'm saying recreate this. And he unwittingly recreates that. He did not commit a crime, even if he knows who Picasso is. Yes, but what you're talking about is not the reality of what's happening. Right. Because we know that these these entertainment companies or the technology companies, we know that they're specifically doing it because they think it's going to create an opportunity for them to make more money. So that's why it's not the same thing. That's not the same thing, though. You did not paint Mike Picasso for free in this scenario. I paid you handsomely to paint this Picasso, but still you did not commit a crime in that instance is what I'm saying. It's just in the eyes of the law. As a matter of fact, this is common practice even now. Many art collectors do not hang the original art on the wall. They instead store them in some high-end facility to protect them and they get replicas made, very realistic looking replicas by a someone that duplicates this art and it is not against the law. What the tech companies are gonna argue is we're not committing crime by learning and we're the not the one trying to sell this art. And so they're gonna say, we don't need your permission to learn from your content, as long as you make it available. Okay, how about this? What if every single, like, let's go back to the book example. Let's say on the very first page of every yeah. book, it says, like, not only do I not allow you to put this in a large language model, but I also don't want you to learn from it. Can you restrict the use of a book? I mean, we don't even know. I mean, like, like this might go to the Supreme Court one day because people are arguing about it. I but, I yeah, but I I'm just saying, but that's a slippery slope. You have to say to every university, don't teach my method because you just, you know, what the problem with AI is that everybody has is that it's at scale. But if I went to a savant and someone who's just a genius who can paint this thing, I, they would do it. And it, you wouldn't be saying the same thing. The problem is it's at scale. It's not that it's at scale. It's that it's for a large multinational company that's going to make money off of it. That's the problem. If it's a savant, if it's like my neighbor down the street and he wants to do a whole bunch of stuff in his garage, I don't have a problem with that. It's the fact that you're going to make billions of dollars off of this. And then you're telling me that you don't want to share the profits with people who you might be able to readily identify that you use their content. Like, that's the thing that's weird about it. Uh, yeah, fair point. Yeah. Fair point. I think it's good to have the discourse. I think that they're going to shake it out and it's probably going to go to some pre corner and we're going to see what happens. But I think that that's probably a fair argument to make that if I can't, at least I should get something. Yeah. From well, I think All ultimately right. this is why the it, it behooves any large company, yeah. well, actually any company that wants to use this stuff, it behooves them to figure out how to bring people into this conversation because whoever figures out how to do it in the nicest way it's like one of the things i had asked you i was like i think whoever figures out how to create the the first ai app store like an app store that's very trusted that's reputable i think they're probably going to end up being the winner of ai in general right you know because you know it's, it's just like apps like you don't hear like google play store is like a thing but what you mostly hear about is the apple app store because people are like it's so easy to use it Right. You know, when you think about like um, um, 
Xbox, like Xbox ecosystem for all their games that they have, people really deeply trust it. And so I do think that that's why, you know, figuring out how to have a nice, you know, congenial relationship with end users, whether those are consumers or the people who create it, that's the path forward for folks. And so, and, and I'm not saying that, that this is about SAG after or anything. I'm talking about this as just a general conversation. Like anyone who is an executive in any one of these companies should be taking a step back and going, what do we think? Like, what is the max that we would like to, to, to pay out to settle this so that we can move forward and just continue to do this and, and be profitable? And then that's the way forward. Like, this even should be an argument. Like, this is, this is just about, like, you, you need to be focused on the business and making the business successful. And we know that people have a problem with it. What do you think is likely, what would be the ideal outcome in this negotiations between the two the two, the, it was actually three groups. What do you think is going to happen? What do you think should happen? So what I think is going to happen is that this actually might go through the end of the year, at least. Like, I think what's going to end up happening, because like, so if I remember correctly from some stuff I read, most studios are okay through the beginning of Q4. It's once Q4 goes, and by the way, the majority of streaming, which most people don't realize is the majority of streaming happens between, uh, like, obviously there's streamers that are outside the United States, but the United States is one of the largest you know, streaming nations. So, you know, most streaming happens um, between like Thanksgiving and the end of the year. And so that's when most people derive the value. That's also when most people will pick up services. So if you have, if you didn't already have Netflix this year or Max or whatever, you will actually subscribe to it in November and December because you're at home and you need something to do. And so if you subscribe and there's nothing new because you're like, well, actually this is all the same content from last year when I subscribed, then you're going to have people turn very quickly. And so it's going to have to be Q4 numbers come through low for, I think, for the, the, the studios to cave a little bit. Um, and then I think that's when it's going to actually be, we're going to get some kind of resolution. Interesting. Oh, okay. You think it's, you think the studios are going to buckle down and say, we need you around that time. You can bring them to the table. Um, I, Okay. That might be possible. I do believe that it's going to be protracted until January. I'm not sure what's going to take its place. I do believe that I think we can expect that Hollywood will try to leverage a large language models as much as possible. I personally think that the WGA should be building their own large language model and protect their writer's work in some way, figure out what their angle is to, to profit off of the use of their work um, in perpetuity. Um, to your point about getting paid, if you're going to use our language model, if you're going to, if you're going to train and, 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 uh, feed your language model with our work, we should get paid. I think that they should probably think about it in that way. I don't think they're going to succeed in the, in the revenue share. No, streaming. No. I don't think there's a lot. Of room well, no, I don't way. think there's a lot of room there. I think that because most streamers are, 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 are losing money, but I do yeah, think yeah. so. Just one last point. So it's not, it's so let's just talk about like, so we've, we focus on actors, writers, producers, directors. The simple fact is there's also costume designers and set designers. If I were those people in those unions, I would be training all of them how to use all these tools, right, to be more effective and efficient. And then you could do like three shows at once. So, I mean, I'm just saying there's a lot of interesting things here. And then Jacqueline just had one more thing. Um, you know, she made this comment. She said, AI, in my opinion, is creating the tyranny of the majority instead of the minority. And so Jacqueline... I don't disagree with that because that's basically what I said. I, I feel like, you know, there's a potential because of how things are kind of rolling out right now that there's going to be this like, you know, there's going to be this pulling back of how we share share things as widely because people will try to keep people from using their things. But I do think 
that we as consumers, like we as the people who are in the end of that, we have the ability to dictate a little bit of this, right? You can stand up and say like, I don't like how y'all operate in here. And so I'm not going to participate with you. And you can, you can, you, so I think there's an opportunity for us. I think the main thing here for me is like, do not be a sheep who just follows. Like you really need to be the person who's like, I have a specific opinion about how I want the companies that I participate with, you know, how they operate with these things. So that's, that's my own opinion. And Tam, a last thought before we wrap up. I am interested to see how this shakes up. I, I, I'm interested to see what, I think some innovation is going to happen. And so I'm interested to see what happens there. And yeah, we'll probably be talking about this in a lot of ways. The last time, you know, like music was taken out of um, schools, the impact of that is the kind of music we have today, mm-hmm. kind of repetitive, very it's real bad. can contribute that directly to when they started pulling music programs out of the school. There's not a lot of music literacy. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens in this gap, what happens because of it. There's no real way to know good or bad, just, but something is going to happen for sure. Well, folks, this was exciting. It was our very first live audience podcast. We did it. Uh, We only had, you know, 15 technical issues even before y'all got on so y'all talked y'all we learned so much of this process so we thank thinkific you know for for asking us to do this we thank tanil who has been a wonderful partner who who's been a partner who's helped us in our business and who's also been on the podcast thank y'all so much for participating and Tim, we did it we did bye guys thank you so much for listening to the drops podcast we love having you we love your feedback please do connect with us across social media. We are The Drops Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And we also have a great email, thedropspodcast at gmail.com. You can send in any questions that you have, and we definitely would love to answer them on the podcast. Feel free to ask just about anything because we have experienced a ton of different things. Again, thank you so much for listening to The Drops Podcast.